welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Go over to the website, counterpunch.org, and get your subscription to Counterpunch Plus. That's how you support this project. That's how you keep the lights on, help pay for our web hosting, and all of those lovely and wonderful fees and costs and other things that we have to take care of to keep Counterpunch coming to you every single day. I know many people have been reading Counterpunch for years, some of, some for decades, and really value what it is that we provide this space for all of the different perspectives on the left, oftentimes at each other's throats. I know that I highly value that. Many others do as well. And of course, this week, I'm going to present you with an interesting conversation with three regular counterpunchers that, again, illustrates the point that I just made, namely that the left is not always going to agree that there are many perspectives and that we have to make sure that we have these spaces online where we can fight it out, where we can fight out the war of ideas on the left, whether it's about Ukraine or Palestine or what's going on in places in Africa or quote-unquote multipolarity and all kinds of other issues, hot-button topics, controversial issues, all of them make an appearance in Counterpunch as they have for many, many years. Go over to the website, sign up for Counterpunch Plus, do the thing, become part of the project. So with that, I want to uh, turn to today's conversation. Unlike a normal circumstances, it is not going to be me in conversation with a guest. In fact, I'm going to present you with a very, very interesting conversation with three regular counterpunchers on a panel in conversation about Ukraine, uh, Russia, the new Cold War, and much, much more. Richard Falk, Professor Emeritus of International Law at Princeton University. Uh, Matthew Stevenson, author of many books, including most recently Our Man in Iran. And Daniel Warner, author of An Ethic of Responsibility in International Relations. Again, all three of them counterpunchers, all three of them with very important contributions to make in the conversation. And of course, I present it to you unedited exactly as it went down so that you can listen and, and enjoy for yourself and also Figure out where you stand on all of these issues. So with that, I will turn it over to Richard Falk, Matthew Stevenson, and Daniel Warner. I will be back next week with yet another Counterpunch Radio conversation. Enjoy. We're here in Geneva, Switzerland. The three, the three amigos, the three guests sitting in front of this microphone are Dr. Daniel Warner, Professor Richard Falk, and the only doctor not in the house, Matthew Stevenson. And Richard, you're going to start us off and tell us a little bit how we all found each other. Well, it's, it's a good story. And uh, we originally sort of met through a common fourth friend here in Geneva and had some very convivial and stimulating lunches that occurred uh, whenever I came to Geneva, which was frequently because I was doing something for the UN at that time that required me to be here every few months. And subsequently, we've kept in touch and developed or deepened our friendship and uh, discovered that we all wrote for uh, Counterpunch and by uh, a coincidence that is perhaps has a certain mystery attached to it, uh, four times the three of us, without prior consultation, published on the same day 
our opinion pieces on quite different topics, but still we converged in this uh, kind of online uh, progressive venue. And here we are in Geneva and trying to see whether uh, what we have to say to one another is uh, worth preserving and worth your listening to. I'll call you Dr. Warner for the first time, but after that I'll call you Danny. Tell, me, tell the listeners a little bit how you and Richard met. Well, Richard comes, used to come frequently to Geneva, and he's here this time to help us celebrate the 90th birthday of George Abisab, who was my thesis advisor and professor at the Graduate Institute. And Richard has come from Turkey to help celebrate George's birthday. Uh, and they were classmates together at Harvard Law School a couple of decades ago. Uh, so we're always pleased to have Richard, and now he came with his wife Hilal uh, in Geneva, and it gives us a chance to schmooze and to exchange on a whole range of topics, uh, which we can do in print, but it's always better to do face-to-face. -face. And I met Danny, Dr. Warner, when I moved to Switzerland back in the 1990s and the 2000s through Gene Shulman, who also knew Richard, and but I... When Gene first said to me, you know, Danny, Danny and I have lunch with Richard all the time, I said, I remembered being an intern at Foreign Policy magazine in between 1977 and 1978 as a manuscript reader, and when I was given a promotion, I was allowed to walk out to the front door, and the distinguished international law professor from Princeton, Richard Falk, would be hand-delivering his copy for the magazine through the front door. And if I was, if I, on my best behavior, I was allowed to go out and retrieve the copy and hand it into the editorial staff. So while I met Richard, I'm not sure Richard quite remembers to whom he was delivering copy in uh, 1977. We thought to, to get the colloquy going, and it's the idea is a three-cornered three conversation, not a one-on-one -on -one interview. We thought we'd start on the subject of why there's not peace today in Ukraine, between Ukraine and Russia, obviously, at, at war and have been for more than a year. And um, Danny, we thought we'd give you the honor of, of talking a little bit, as you have in some of your columns, why isn't there peace? Well, I mean, there are certain people who were trying to get negotiations started, but they haven't really begun in a positive way. And my opinion is that there's a mentality out there on the Russian side, the Ukrainian side, certainly on the American side, that someone has to win. Uh, on the Russian side, it might be that Ukraine gets absorbed into a sphere of influence as it was within the Soviet Union. From the American point of view and the Ukrainian point of view, they want to have a sovereign, independent country which can join the European Union, NATO, or whatever it, what it decides. So we have two what I consider to be extreme positions with neither side seeming to move to some kind of negotiated settlement. Uh, there have been attempts in Geneva and certainly in other places to have negotiations start, but both sides all sides in the conflict seem to be under the illusion that someone can win 
and if someone wins, then someone's going to lose, uh, which is hard to understand, and the war continues with the destruction that we're seeing and the loss of lives. Can I ask Danny a quick follow-up quick question, Richard, and then we'll, we'll turn it over to you. To put you on the spot, what would, what would the grounds for, for, you, would, for you to negotiate a peace settlement between Ukraine and Russia? Well, obviously, Ukraine has to continue as an independent country, but there has to be some kind of realization that the region such as Donbass uh, is very close uh, to Russia, Russia speaking, and Russian culturally. On the other hand, the notion in 2008, the Bucharest Ministerial, that one day Ukraine will be a member of NATO or a member of the European Union, right next to Russia seems to me to be something out of the question and cannot be acceptable to the Russians. So what I'm looking for is some kind of compromise or consensus that I'm not hearing from either side for the moment. Richard, we're going to turn to you, but give the listeners just a little bit of your personal background, which is a, a long journey in law, politics, negotiations. I know from our other lunches and meetings. You were for 40 years a professor of politics and international law at Princeton, but you've done many other things than that and written many other books. Give a little flavor for the listener who doesn't quite know your work. Uh, well, uh, all those years at Princeton, uh, I was sort of a refugee from uh, law teaching because Princeton had no law school and no law students. And so I became interested in the connection between law and politics and particularly as they played out in international politics and was concerned with a bunch of issues but uh, among them were a concern with two primary ones. One was uh, the failure after World War II to do more to get rid of nuclear weapons. And the other was the feeling that uh, interventions in the global south were uh, something that was very regressive and continued the colonial legacy in a manner that was damaging and uh, likely to fail as it did dramatically in Vietnam. And I suppose my political uh, worldview was shaped by my, uh, both by my opposition to the Vietnam War, but also by my contact with the Vietnamese who uh, taught me in a way uh, what it meant to be vulnerable to military intervention and what uh, they were prepared to sacrifice in order to achieve national self-determination. Coming to this, the current conflict in Ukraine, why do you think there's no peace in Ukraine? Uh, I think uh, there's probably a multitude of converging and semi-converging uh, reasons for that. I don't think there's any one explanation. And I think that the different uh, involved governments were each given uh, 
rather misleading uh, understandings of what their prospects were and, and each of them had the feeling at various times that if they persisted they would prevail and so it was characterized by uh, gross miscalculations on the part of Ukraine, Russia and the US or NATO uh, however one wants to uh, characterize the uh, external or Euro-American uh, response to the Russian attack. I agree with what uh, Danny has been uh, saying about uh, why uh, there has been no negotiations. I, I would only add that it's particularly tragic because my sense is that whenever the war comes to an end, it will have the contours of what a compromise would look like ever since the Russians started the invasion. Meaning we'll fight the war and get to the point where we could have begun before the war had, had started. Well, yeah, or at least after the opening days. See, I think, again, there was a Russian miscalculation, maybe based on the Crimean experience, Crimean precedent, that this was their traditional sphere of influence. And that was uh, coupled with this American uh, reaction that thought that if we uh, embolden the Ukrainians enough and give them enough economic and military assistance, they can inflict a defeat on Russia and reinforce our global security role that emerged after the end of the Cold War in the 1990s. And uh, I think that from a very early stage, the Ukrainian war was about more than Ukraine. It was about the geopolitical alignment between the US, Russia, and China, and particularly US and China. And that it, was, it came to be believed that whoever prevailed in uh, Ukraine would also control the, post, uh, the end of the post-Cold War era and start a new, uh, new form of geopolitics, new form of bipolarity or multipolarity, and displace the unipolarity that emerged in the 1990s after the implosion of the Soviet Union. Danny, you were going to say yeah. something. I mean, here. I think Richard's point about illusion uh, needs deepening, because it's a very powerful point. In the beginning, if the Russians thought it was going to be simple, as what happened in 2008 in Georgia uh, and 2014 in Crimea, there is a disillusion. But the reality has happened after a year, has made some fundamental changes, not just in terms of loss of life and destruction, but we now see Russia closer to China than they had been before. 
We see the United States solidifying NATO with Sweden and eventually Sweden and Finland becoming members. So on a larger scale, there is a different reality than what was there in February when the aggression started. And my question to Richard and Matthew is at what point are the illusions accepted and people are going to deal with the new reality and try and figure out what this means and how we're going to live with this. Because if the war continues, Russia's going to become closer to China, the US and NATO, etc. So we're going back to a new kind of Cold War, a different one, as you pointed out, than after the Second World War. But it still is a situation which is far from any kind of world order that can exist. When I met you, as it happened, fatefully, it seems, in 2014 in what we now call Kyiv, um, I came with my son Charles. We came Moscow, uh, Tula, uh, Kursk, Belgorod, now under attack, Kharkiv, Poltava, Kyiv, to meet you and have dinner there in the, with the midst of the Maidan. And what struck me was coming that way into Ukraine, I was more sympathetic to the Russian view of Donbass and eastern Ukraine as Russian-speaking, Russian cities, Russian culture. Yet when the train pulled into to Kyiv and we spent a few days together there in the, in the capital of Ukraine, what did strike me very forcefully, and this was then 10 years ago, was how much the people that I met, we met, didn't want to be part of the Russian sphere of influence. They didn't want to be part of whatever legacy of the Warsaw Pact was there. They didn't want to trade with Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. They wanted Apple phones and Starbucks coffee in a, in a crude consumer sense. And so a little bit you could say that Western Ukraine, the Polish part of Ukraine, if you want to call it that, is more European, while as the East could be more Russian. But at what point, I'll ask you both, at what point is it the people of Ukraine who themselves should decide whether they want to be East or West? Well, I can start the a response, and it's a very important question because I think it goes to the issue of what happens when the right of self-determination clashes with the strategic interests of the geopolitical actors. And I don't think Russia or China or the US has given up the idea of spheres of influence. Uh, Antony Blinken talks about the spheres of influence being in the dustbin of history, but that doesn't seem to be the case with Cuba or Venezuela <laughs> uh, and generally Latin America and even other places in the world, the Middle East, uh, in various parts, and Asia in various parts. So the notion that self-determination is the primary norm is an uh, illusion of maybe international lawyers and human rights activists, but it doesn't describe the existential nature of world order, which is somehow intention about the relationship between geopolitics and, uh, and self-determination. The countries of East Europe would have uh, given you the same feedback about uh, wanting 
uh, McDonald's and Starbucks rather than Soviet influence. But in fact, probably the fault lines that were determined at Yalta and Potsdam prevented World War III. In other words, uh, thwarting the self-determination of East European countries was a very unpleasant thing to do for those peoples. But it would have been more unpleasant to have a nuclear war spiral out of a effort to contain uh, Soviet influence in what they felt was one of the fruits of their victory and defense in World War II. I think that same uh, collision of ideas is present here, but without Potsdam and uh, Yalta to create uh, geopolitical fault lines that would keep the two uh, superpowers apart. Might I ask you, before we turn the mic to Danny, might I ask you, would you accept a partition of Ukraine along, say, the Dnipro River with between West and East, roughly, if that would, if that would reestablish boundaries in Europe that would keep West and East from lobbing nuclear weapons in each, each other's direction? Well, if, if, it, if it indeed would keep, I, I don't know the reality sufficiently to give a uh, dogmatic answer to the question because uh, the, the, in, in this situation, the views of the Ukrainians do have some bearing on what they're uh, expected to swallow. And I think that one can expect them to uh, renounce the prospect of NATO membership, but I'm not sure that uh, one could expect them to accept the partition of their country. They might accept, might be prepared to accept and made to accept a kind of UN peacekeeping force between Donbass and the western part of Ukraine. I don't know. Danny? Matthew, your, your, your comment about dividing Ukraine is a very geopolitical comment about territory and borders. And after all, if we're looking at the world today with internet, artificial intelligence, it's interesting that we're going back to some very basic concepts of territory and a, a, a politics of place. But we are in Geneva. We are in Switzerland, which is a loose confederation of three official languages, four national languages, German, French, Italian, and Romanche. And why is it inconceivable to see a Ukraine which could be similar to Switzerland in a loose confederation where part of the country in the eastern part can speak Russian, in the western part they can speak Ukrainian. Uh, there can be a central government, Switzerland has a central government, but it also has very strong cantal governments. So the question of a decentralized Ukraine, which could be neutral, not necessarily a member of NATO or the European Union, seems to me that something that could be negotiated. As far as the Russians are concerned, the importance of Crimea, the importance of Sebastopol, is their only access to warm water port. And that seems to me to be something that has to be taken into consideration. When I discuss the war, I always say, what is the view for Moscow? 
Uh, and the view from Moscow, whether you talk, Richard, in terms of sphere of influence, I mean, we're not going to say the United States has abandoned the Monroe Doctrine. It certainly hasn't. Uh, and there has to be a certain reality from NATO's position, if you have NATO, if from Russia's position, if you have NATO troops exactly on its border, what would we do if there were Chinese troops on the border of the United States and Canada or Mexico? Uh, and I think there's an issue that the aggression has been so outrageous that it's difficult to say that the Russians may have certain interests which we have to take into account to wind up with some kind of compromise and solution. But Danny, is it, isn't it also possible that um, drawing lines not in the sand but here on kind of mountainous or rolling terrain and, and, and rivers in Ukraine is, is an attempt which was made at Yalta, but Yalta failed because both sides heard what they wanted to hear at Yalta. Stalin left Yalta saying, I've been given the ability to extend Russian power pretty much to Vienna. And, the, and Churchill and Roosevelt, Roosevelt heard I get the United Nations, and Churchill heard I get to keep the British Empire. They all were negotiating for different interests. They all left, said we did the best we could, and none of them achieved anything, and it fell apart within, well, Potsdam was three months later, but it maybe didn't quite fall apart. That Within a year or two, it had fallen apart. I don't quite share that view, because it, uh, the the West respected uh, the the d divisions of Europe all through the Cold War, even in the face of the Hungarian intervention and the East European uh, East German intervention and the Czech uh, uh, Spring, there was a a willingness to forego. Uh, a sense that this was something that should be part of the containment doctrines. Containment didn't go to the Russian-Soviet border, it went to the borders that were agreed upon at Yalta and Potsdam. So I don't think it's reasonable to say that from Stalin's point of view it was altogether a failure. But, or from the global point of view. But I think, you're, I think you're looking at it post-Churchill's speech in Fulton, Missouri in 1947. I'm thinking a little bit more between 45 and 47 when there was the hope that the Russians, the Americans, the British, the Security Council, so to speak, would arbitrate global peace, which was dispelled at some point early on in what you call the containment world. That the containment world worked I don't think that was the intention of what they were negotiating at Yalta. I don't think they knew. I don't think they knew that Russia, the Soviet Union, would or NATO to pick either one. I don't think either side knew that the other would draw such firm barriers across Europe. See, I still am somewhat in disagreement because I think all three of these uh, political actors had foreign policy elites that were, polit were political realists and they never trusted uh, some kind of uh, peaceful resolution of the conflict, including the U.S. despite FDR. And I agree, he had this idea that since these countries had cooperated against fascism, 
There was no reason they couldn't cooperate to keep the peace. But I think the, the entourage around the, the leadership in all three of these countries was distrustful of anything that was seemed law-oriented or looked towards some kind of permanent peace. The reason I think it matters, Richard, and I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with your concept, but I think it matters in this sense that after 1991, that was a kind of a replay of Yalta a little bit. We thought Russia and the West together might be more harmonious than they came to be. That was not, with Putin in, into the 2000s, the aughts, that fell away for whatever reasons. And I would argue that this, the same reaction of kind of shock and horror, both sides, Russia responding, how could NATO want Ukraine as one of its members, and the, and the West saying, how can Russia treat the world as Stalin did in 1956, is the, one of the reasons why there's a war on in Ukraine today. But let's get Danny involved in this. Yeah, I think, Matthew, that, I mean, two points. Uh, number one, I would question Richard. Uh, he had a project, a very ambitious one, called the World Order Model Project. And it does seem to me that this Ukraine-Russia conflict calls into question human rights, humanitarian law, the role of the United Nations, and the role of negotiation. Uh, and it seems to me that international public law uh, has certainly taken a, a huge blow in this conflict. The second point to Matthew about 1991. I happen to be an advisor to NATO at the moment, that moment and opened the office at NATO in Kiev and Moscow. And there was a small attempt to include Russia in a European security community. And Medvedev did come up with a plan for a European commu security community. It didn't last very long. Uh, but it does seem to me that there was a certain euphoria at the end of the Cold War with is bound to lead the United States as the indispensable country, and that euphoria, we won, we won, led to the humiliation of Russia. And it seems to me that a lot of what Putin is doing is a backlash against that euphoria. Uh, if I can just briefly respond, uh, it's, it, I don't share the view that the end of the Cold War uh, brought about a sense that uh, Russia could, Russia and the U.S. or the West could work together. I think what it brought was a hierarchical arrangement in which the U.S. won the Cold War and Russia lost the Cold War and was prepared to uh, be a subordinate international actor. And it began breaking out of that uh, kind of temporary consensus with the Crimea, uh, or maybe Georgia. Georgia, 2008. Yes, 2008. And uh, in that sense, it explains partly uh, Gorbachev's unpopularity and Putin's popularity in, Ru in Russia that he restored, he's seen as restoring or seeking to restore the great power status of Russia. And, and therefore, it's important to distinguish a cooperative relationship based on mutual interests 
from a hierarchical relationship, you know, which is... Subordination. Yes, which is subordinate. Let me go back to the, to the map of Ukraine and Russia and pick up with you, Richard, a little bit your bipolar, peaceful, peace, more peaceful coexistence world. Do you think that if a line was drawn somewhere in Ukraine, and, and I, I can't say I know where it would be, we can imagine that would that somehow restore some kind of status, you know, status quo ante to European relations or not? Uh, I, it would depend on how the public discourse accompanying that peace arrangement was handled and perceived. I think it's very hard to predict whether it would be viewed as a betrayal of Ukraine or as a reasonable accommodation to the uh, uh, various interests at stake. And one shouldn't forget the primary preoccupation with China and Taiwan and how that is would be perceived in Beijing and in Washington in relation to the future of that relationship. In other words, if, embark if the Ukraine settlement meant embarking on a different structure of world order in which uh, one had a more uh, uh, multipolar uh, system of restraints and uh, prudence and less hegemonic and less uh, militarized, then it would be a, a very positive outcome. But I don't see that as being part of how the U.S. internally justifies its high peacetime military budget. See, and that's all part of the picture, it seems to me. Richard, I want to come back to my comment and to ask you about the role of human rights, international humanitarian law, and international law in general in terms of what's going on in this conflict. Well, uh, when you made that point, which I think is a uh, widely shared one about the, they suffer, the suffering of uh, international public law and human rights as a result of the Russian attack on Ukraine, I immediately thought that we did the same thing in Iraq. And you remember that uh, George W. Bush, after the UN failed to give, uh, in the Security Council, failed to authorize the attack, he said, this shows the irrelevance of the UN. He said, if the UN wants to be relevant, it can't oppose this kind of undertaking. So I wouldn't say that, uh, it, it, maybe from the perspective of public perception, what you say is correct, but I think the whole post-Vietnam and post-Vietnam international diplomacy shows a disregard of international law and human rights whenever they clash with the geopolitical interests of the P2 at that point during the Cold War and after the Cold War the P1 
and we wonder what will emerge out of the eventual resolution of the Ukraine conflict. But Richard, if Ukraine is slightly Russian payback for Iraq, for Afghanistan, for Libya, for Kosovo, for the, all this sort of the Western aggression against Russia's spheres of influence, if you want to call it that, and that, that Ukraine is just finally the, the Russian psyche snapping against the West to try to some redress the imbalance that they felt during the years 91 to say 2020, roughly. How does that, how do, how do you reset that clock so that then post-conflict in Ukraine, Europe can feel that in Russia it has an ally or a partner or a neighbor with which it can exist? I think the adjustment has to be more than Russia. See, I think the, the I don't think the, the attack on Ukraine was so much a payback. It, was a, it took advantage of precedence, the precedence of, Ukraine, of Kosovo and Iraq and so on. That when the strategic interests of a great power are challenged, it is not subject to international law or the authority of the UN. That wasn't uh, a novel uh, development as a result of the Russian attack on Ukraine. It was a continuation of what I view and m many other international law people view as a regressive trend that emer has emerged in the last 50 years or so. It is true, and I completely agree with Richard, uh, that at a certain moment it was agreed in the Helsinki Accords that there would be no changes of borders. And when Switzerland jumped... For our listeners, Helsinki's 1975. Right. So when the Swiss jumped on recognizing Kosovo, I did point out to people in the Swiss government that Moscow is going to use this as a precedent. And Putin continually says, you change the borders there, so you can't complain about us changing the borders or talking that way. And I think Richard's general point is that it's not just hypocrisy, but it's bad government and diplomacy for the United States and other countries to start pointing their fingers when their own acts have been appeared to be exactly the same thing that they're complaining about when Russia does that. And I also think Richard's point about upholding a certain world order and human rights and whatever, we know that in the global south, that many people consider international public law to be an arm of the northern and western states. And in the General Assembly uh, resolution that condemned Russia for its aggression, 35 countries in the global south abstained. And it does seem to me that Richard's point is we're dealing with a fundamental change uh, in the international system as it has existed. Uh, what that will mean, we don't know. But certainly the traditional way it has been post the Second World War is not going to continue. Richard, do you want to come back on that? No, well, I, I uh, essentially agree with uh, uh, what Danny has just said. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate that we're, we have this pattern. 
And it's doubly unfortunate when you act as if only your adversary is responsible. In other words, it, it turns international law and human rights into a policy tool rather than a regulative principle. Uh, because it only applies to your enemy, it doesn't apply to yourself. And, and therefore it uh, undercuts uh, respect for international law. Why, why should a country respect it when they see the most powerful countries uh, manipulate it for their own foreign policy and strategic advantage? And I think that kind of critique of the behavior of the principal geopolitical actors uh, is something uh, that should be given a lot of attention, along with whether China is something different. Is China a, the, as some people have said, the only adult in the room, or is it just using its instruments of power in a way that is, causes less uh, overt friction, but achieves the same uh, encroachment on the sovereignty of other countries. What I want to introduce now, and just for listeners who've come in midstream, I'm Matthew Stevenson. We're all in Geneva. I'm with Daniel Warner and Professor Richard Falk, and we're having a conversation about the things that we often talk about at lunch when we've met over the years. This one's a little different in that we have a tape recorder running. What I want to ask both of you is, and I don't say I have an answer, I'll give you my observation and you can tell me if I'm correct or incorrect. Um, is Russia an ascendant power or a declining power? And I base this just before the war broke out in summer of 2021. I have, as some of the listeners may know, I like traveling with a small bicycle. Took the bicycle to Moscow, rode around Moscow for three or four days, took the train to Volgograd, and from Volgograd worked my way down to Simferopol, Sebastopol, Yalta, so all the way down into Crimea. Several observations, other than that biking in Russia is a bit of, a, of an acquired taste, I would say, but one is that all the money in Russia is in Moscow. It's not in Krasnodar, it's not in Simferopol, it's not in Bakhchisarai, it isn't even in Sebastopol, despite naval ships. It's a one-city country with the wealth, the oligarchic wealth piled up in, in Moscow. And outside of Moscow, Russia doesn't look like the Russia or the Soviet Union, this, this somehow egalitarian country. So I, I'm asking myself, is Russia itself at risk of falling apart? Is the West in backing Ukraine taking advantage of a declining power in this case, Russia, with a, a, a fairly unequal economic system, all the money kind of sticking in Moscow, and is this the West basically doing what empires have done since the Mongols and before, taking advantage of a Russian weakness and trying to slam its nose into the door? Is that possible? Can I ask you just one quick clarifying question, which is uh, how then do you account for the uh, popularity that Putin seems to enjoy with the R Russian people if the country, except for Moscow, is, seems so 
I, don't, I wasn't conducting political polling when I was there, that Putin is popular or not popular, I would say a little hard to tell just because it is a one-man state. The, the elections for the Duma don't mean anything. I, don't, I think that some of the opposition members that I kind of read about, thought about, um, followed a little bit, uh, were in prison, poisoned, dead. So I, I would say the pop, that, that the average Russian may or may not back Putin, I would say a little hard to tell. That would be my response. And especially to speak out in Russia puts you, could put you in, in prison. So that if there was, a, if, if there was an ability to, to be a member of a, of a legal opposition there, we might have a better idea of the extent of his popularity. That would be my slight mm-hmm. quick answer. It's possibly very popular. It's possible people resent resent him, but just can't say anything. I don't, I really don't know. I'm not not being coy. I just don't have a good answer. Yeah, I think Matthew, your point about wealth uh, is, I think, economic based on extraction, etc. But we can't ignore that Russia is a military power. We can argue about the performance of the military in Ukraine poor weapons, he has to get people out of prison, to be, but he still has nuclear weapons. And the elephant in the room in all of this, as the war escalates from Leopard 2 tanks to F-16s, etc., is Putin has said that at the last resort or whatever, he eventually could use nuclear weapons. Uh, and that seems to me to be a problem that we can't ignore. Uh, and whether he's crazy, whether he's this, whether he's that, some psychologists may know, but I think historically declining empires have not gone out easily. Uh, I give great credit to the British Empire. They seem to have somehow managed to deal with the fact that they have a commonwealth, etc. But the problem will be the question of Russian pride. Uh, And I do say that there was a certain humiliation that took place. Uh, I called it a moment of euphoria. Joe Nye's book, Bound to Lead. Uh, Fukuyama's The End of History. Uh, And Putin represents something to the people of Russia. Uh, So whether it is, in fact, economically declining or whether there's a, a poor distribution of wealth the military might, the nuclear weapons are there, and that problem has not been solved. Yes, well, I fully agree with that, and uh, I think uh, I think the uh, issue of how one deal, uh, well, how the West dealt with the end of the Cold War and missed opportunities to strengthen the normative side of world order is one of the uh, failures, great failures of uh, leadership. I mean, and contrasts with the leadership after '45, when I think it basically was a constructive force in uh, economic and political reconstruction and stability and so on. So. I don't know what one should expect, except that it was very dangerous to push a nuclear power 
to the point where it has the choices of surrender or nuclear recourse to nuclear weapons. And I think there's some people that are influential, at least in the US and probably in NATO generally, who are prepared to take that risk, who think that-, that, that That's projecting, you're not saying that happened in 2012 or anything, you're saying that could be an outcome of the of, of the, the current the current war in between Ukraine and Russia, yes. I can't help myself but try to think provocatively a little bit. Let's talk about Trump's foreign policy. It was the most pro-Russian foreign policy the United States has had since you picked the you picked the president. Maybe it was Andrew Johnson and Seward buying Alaska, but he was went over, bent over backwards to accommodate Putin to accommodate Russia, to not be provocative, to not object to anything Putin suggested or, or otherwise, and to the point of denying military aid to Ukraine and not even very much. How does he, how does the, the Putin foreign policy align with what you're describing in the West as this kind of pushing Russia into a corner? Well, it's hard to evaluate Trump's foreign policy, or any policy for that matter, uh, and there are all kinds of stories circulating that he, he was himself personally compromised by either financial or personal. Whatever, right. Yeah, uh, and therefore this was uh, personal politics much more than it was geopolitics. But. Uh, Given that, uh, I think that there is a, a substantial case, despite what you said about the uncertainty of the polls, uh, my impression from talking with uh, Russians, anti-Putin Russians, was that uh, compared to Gorbachev, Putin is very popular and that uh, Gorbachev is a hero in the West, and we don't perceive this kind of strong autocratic leadership as something that is legitimate within the Russian uh, context. I think there were two dreams going on, or illusions in the West. One is that Putin will either die or be overthrown, and the second is that the person who will replace him will be more democratic and more open. Yes. Uh, and I think those are really dreams uh, and dysfunctional in the sense that he does seem to be popular. Uh, and it is amazing that some one person can be that strong, having lost hundreds of thousands of people in the fight, having to call up all kinds of civilians to fight with an enormous country, with the military not performing as a top military should, and yet we don't see any indications. Now, Matthew, you can't say that everyone in the streets all over this huge country are, are afraid of being put in prison. He must be doing something right, uh, and that's something that we don't take into consideration. You make it sound like somehow Putin is kind of just this, this wildly popular when no, was the last, when was the last election what was the last election that Putin had to stand for I think it was about 2001 wasn't it I don't think that I don't think we know I mean I would but then whether he's popular or not that from a international law standpoint when you invade another country 
It's one thing to say in Bucharest, maybe someday Georgia, Ukraine would be part of NATO. But there's another thing to invade another country and launch missiles into apartment buildings, yes? No, I, the launching drones and bombs into apartment buildings, hospitals, dams, and schools, there's no argument there. On the other hand, from his perspective, and I'm always trying to empathize with the other, as I think Richard would agree, Ukraine is not invading another country. For him, Ukraine is part of Russia, part of the Soviet Union. Uh, in 1954, whatever Khrushchev did, it's still part of, and, and you know but the history, Matthew, that Russia started in, they came from Ukraine. Uh, so there's a whole history there. Well, you could there. turn it the other way around, say all of Russia's Ukraine, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to do it that. But, but come on, in night, when, when Ukraine gave up its nuclear missiles, it, at that, in that treaty done between Kyiv and Moscow, Russia agreed to respect the borders of Ukraine as they existed. You agree with that, don't you? No, no, I, yeah, but, but on the other hand, again, I'm, you're making me give the Russian arguments, right? When you have NATO, they'll say that Gorbachev was promised that NATO would not expand eastward. So you broke that promise. Now, if you broke that promise, don't hold us to something else. Yeah, and, you know, people like Kennan, George Kennan, and uh, the last ambas American ambassador to uh, Moscow, Matlock, both warned that if if Ukraine attempted if if NATO attempted to absorb Ukraine, it would lead to uh, n not necessarily uh, an invasion, but it would lead to uh, severe hostilities. So now let's go. We're going to end. We have about ten minutes to go. Let's let's go back to where we started, and we'll go around the table. I'm going to I'll draw straws and pick Danny as first. Now you can impose peace on Ukraine. Given all we've said, tell me what the Warner peace settlement looks like. Well, it does seem to me that Ukraine is not going to be a member of NATO. Whether Ukraine can be a member of the European Union is something else. If Ukraine is going to maintain itself as a sovereign country, some kind of loose confederation has to include Donbass, Crimea, etc without them asking for autonomy or being part of Russia. So, sorry, just to clarify, you're saying Crimea has to be part of Ukraine in a loose federation? In, in some way. Confederation. In some, in confederation. confederation. Not, not part of Russia. So yeah. you're taking no. it away from Russia and giving it to Ukraine is what you're doing? Yes. Okay, yeah. keep going. Uh, and it does seem to me uh, that the question of reconstruction of Ukraine, etc., uh, must be not only uh, a Western activity, it has to be uh, a global activity, and Russia has to be included. Uh, we have had enormous difficulty saying that at the end of the Cold War to include Russia in whatever discussions take place about Europe, etc., has to happen. And we know that there's a history of tension between China and Russia, and we force them in one way or another to get closer together, and we force Russia out of their European heritage. So somehow it has to be a joint thing involving Russia in it, instead of humiliating them and saying that you lost and we won. So to summarize, you're, you're saying 
Ukraine is not part of NATO. It's, it's confederation as in the Swiss model with cantonal sort of jurisdiction in places like Donbass, Donetsk, Crimea, Sea of Azov, those areas. Richard, do you have a, is there a Falk peace plan? Uh, no, I uh, basically uh, share Danny's view, but I am a little bit skeptical about including Crimea. The, the war initially was not about Crimea, and it seems to me it, uh, the Russians will be uh, less likely to accept the Confederation if it includes Crimea. But other than that, I think that there is the foundation of a compromise, that it would be a mistake to leave Dumbass at the mercy of Kiev. And the content, we haven't talked about the, what happened between 2014 and this invasion in 2023. And the people of Dumbass did suffer from uh, a, a couple of massacres that occurred and, and a general suppression of their human rights. So they, This is the part of Donbass that was controlled by the Russians or the controlled by Ukraine? It's controlled by the Ukrainians, but... Uh, so you, this is west of the line. The, yeah. the, this is between, somewhere between the Dnipro River and the Russian line of occupation. Yeah. You're saying in some of those Ukrainian villages, towns, where Russians had a population, there were massacres and abuses and of the, human and rights. The, and the Ukrainian government uh, refused to uphold the Minsk agreements, which were designed to create this kind of protection for the Russian. So the fog, the fog plan is Russia continues to control Crimea. Yes, it's it's not given back to Ukraine. Well, that, that, yes, that Crimea should not be part of the peace negotiation. So you're saying established Crimea is part of Russia, and then what about along the Sea of Azov there, Mariupol and those, the land bridge? Would you would give that back to Ukraine, or would you let Russia keep that? Uh, I I don't have an opinion. And then how about? Donbass and the, and where it's now c currently occupied by the Russians. No, ideally, uh, the compromise should include the withdrawal of all Russian troops, but may be compensated for by having an international peacekeeping presence of the sort that exists in southern uh, Lebanon, I think it is and has done a good job in keeping the Israelis. But that's different. So, I, sorry to be, be map-centric. You would t you say to the Russians, who are now in Donetsk and some of those, that area, all the way down to Crimea, they withdraw from that. Yes. That becomes, a, that becomes sovereign territory of the Ukraine. Yes. With the exception of Crimea, which remains part of Russia. Yeah. And, and in the buffer zone between East and West, uh, there are UN peacekeeping troops. Yes. Ukraine doesn't join NATO. Does it join the European Union under the Falk Plan? Uh, it's certainly uh, desirable that it be allowed to do that. If uh, it fulfills all the obligations, which yeah. will be difficult. 
So, but I mean, if if you're if then you're saying to the Ukrainians, sorry, you don't get NATO, you don't get the European Union, you you don't get Crimea. Are they going to stop fighting? That becomes yeah. that that becomes the issue. At that, the negotiation, in a way, is, is easier with Russia on that accord than it is with Ukraine, is it not? What's in it for them? Well, I mean, the war—they stopped getting bombed first of all, and, and secondly, they maintained themselves as a sovereign country. It seems to me that's enormous. Or let's—and then let, we'll do the third. We'll wrap up on the third. I'm not saying it's the Stevenson plan, but I'll give you the the third option. Says. You fight until you've pushed the Russians back as far as you think you can push them, wherever that might be. I don't think that's to Rostov. I think that's, I don't even think it's, I don't even think you get Donetsk if you push that far. You might be able to break the land bridge between, between the, uh, the Donbass and Crimea. That's possible. And then, and then you have to decide who, who has the better claim to Crimea? I would argue the best claim to Crimea is in Russia or Ukraine. It's probably Turkey, since it was more Ottoman lands than Russian or certainly uh, Ukrainian. Uh, or you could give it to Greece if you didn't want to give it to Turkey. You could part partition it. Would it would it make sense in any kind of way to make Crimea a demilitarized zone with that not a not a Russian naval base not a Ukrainian naval base uh, my own preference would be to uh, seek a separate negotiating uh, framework for Crimea and not make it part of the Ukraine peace settlement because I think it will uh, greatly co uh, complicate and undermine the possibilities of a Ukrainian peace. So you would just not even include it in any negotiations. You yes. would simply adjudicate, but let me let me then push you a little bit. Where is the Falk line? We had a Curzon line in Eastern Europe, now we're gonna have a Falk line. Where is the Falk line between Russia and the West? Is it along that eastern border of Ukraine? Uh, as of as of uh, 2023, when the invasion took place, it's, it's that status quo. It's the boundaries that existed combined with the withdrawal of Russian troops that were present within Ukraine at that time, uh, but not broadening the agenda. Because the, under, in a way, under the Warner plan, that line is Moldova, Poland, Along Ukraine is is not in NATO. It's 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 neutral. It's neutral Switzerland in Eastern Europe. Is That's that, right. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean Switzerland surrounded. Well, Austria is neutral, but it's surrounded by France, Germany, and Italy, and Switzerland is neutral. And that is so that the line isn't in that Eastern Ukraine. It's the Polish. Well, it's no man's land, so to speak. It's it's whatever it's whatever way Ukraine evolves between That's right. the end of the signing of the peace and the next 20 years. But there are limits to what they can do and there are limits to where the NATO troops can go. We've been talking here in Geneva, Switzerland between Matthew Stevenson, Richard Falk, Daniel Warner, and we're going to say goodbye now. We've had a long conversation and this isn't to say this is the last conversation, but it's the uh, 
it's the uh, it's where we want to take it today. Thank you all for staying with us for this hour, and thank you, Danny and Richard, for spending so much time together. Thank you, Matthew, for moderating. Thank this you, event. Matthew. All the best. Thank you. Bye bye.